You are a blessing, young lady. Happy New Year. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And I have some announcements. Some are in the bulletin, some aren't, so put your listening ears on. Uh, Brooke, don't listen for this one. There's a baby shower for Brooke Rafferty on the 16th and the 23rd, and they've asked for diapers, size one and two, any brand. And I would suggest gift cards would be nice also. You think of Ruth Chris Steakhouse. And they are waiting until the big day to discover the baby's gender. And I would like to put in a little suggestion since you don't know the gender. First names, Andrew and Andrea, have a nice ring to me, I think. Just a thought. Tonight, we have State of the Church Address by Dr. Layton, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper and meet for a time of fellowship afterwards. Keep in mind the True Life Conference and see Isaac for details and scholarships. It is a new year, and we have laminated fighter verses bookmarked that uh, we'll put this on the back table and if we run out, we will laminate some more. But due to supply chain issues, we have run out of laminate. But we're hoping that it will be soon corrected, at least by the midterm elections. And we have a church membership class scheduled for the 9th, the 16th, and the 23rd of January. So if you're interested in joining us, see me for details. And since I don't get to preach much, only on months that have six Sundays, I thought I'd take this opportunity to say something. 2021 has ended, and we're looking at 360-plus days of 2022, if the Lord tarries. Let me ask you some questions, church. Has God been good to you this year? Has he been faithful to you? Oh, that's not good. Has he been faithful? Has Jesus let you down at all? No. Do you think God knows the end from the beginning and can hold the universe together regardless of COVID, inflation, or who's in the Oval Office? Amen. Yeah. Okay. That's just a lead-in to let me suggest that you pick a Bible verse or passage for this year coming up and hang on to it because it's, it's bound to be a wild ride just because we live in humanity but we are a church as henry was teaching this morning that believes in the sufficiency of scripture the rock of our salvation and we're all wired differently but i would really encourage you to take some time even during the church service to say lord would you give me a verse or a passage where i can cling to for going forward I remember 10-plus years ago, my secretary put up a big bulletin board outside my office, a 4 by 8 bulletin board, based on Isaiah 26.3. And you can look that up. And later on in that day, my bride came in with a breast cancer diagnosis. But God used that verse to be a solid rock, a solid foundation for the Alexons. So here's one scripture. It's from Colossians 1. This is just to prime the pump. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we all know that the him is Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope that 2022 is the year that Jesus Christ is preeminent in my life and in your lives. But I encourage you, take positive steps to make sure that he's preeminent. Okay, we might have to open up the pulpit to you and allow you to preach. Get that out of you <laughs> this year, but not today. Thanks also mentioning scripture in particular. Uh, t- tonight we will, uh, at 6 o'clock, we're going to commune with Christ to begin this new year. I hope you can join us. don't have to be a member of the church to participate, but we'll have a special time tonight at 6 o'clock on Wednesday Uh, We will be online with our Zoom, and if you don't have the link to it, Andy can get it for you. We'll begin talking about um, New Year's resolutions, and particularly as we're challenged from the Scripture on that topic. So I hope you do join with us, and I do uh, want to say one more thing about uh, Scripture memory. As Andy pointed out, those cards that he's putting out, we, we put these fighter verses together. Gail has helped us with it particularly for the children, to encourage them. Uh, we'll talk in, in a very, uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks or so on Wednesdays about uh, memory verses and meditating on Scripture, but if you need a source, that's a great source for it. We also print it in our bulletin every week, the meditation verse, and as Andy said, if you need one to find, that's a good source. Uh, you may just Instead of every single week, try to memorize and meditate. Maybe just take one a month. That's fine. Uh, But this is a a new year and a new time to make certain commitments. And I can't think of much better than to think about God's word and hiding it in your heart. And I'd certainly like to help you to do that. And we'll talk more about that uh, in days to come. This week's verse is from Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but uh, the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I wanted to give you a moment privately right where you're at as we begin on this Lord's Day to prepare your heart to worship Christ. Take a moment privately, confess sin, recognize that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is an overwhelming statement and promise that he has made. Privately do so, and then ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart that you might be able to hear and heed the words of Christ today. 
then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered here together as your people to worship your holy name. On this, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week of this new year. O Lord, I pray indeed that Christ would be preeminent in each one of our hearts. We would recognize that indeed in him all things were created for and by and continue because of Christ. And it is through Christ that we have an advocate with you and can cry out, Father, and recognize that you will indeed hear our very prayers. We are humbled that the God of, of all creation would hear and be mindful of us, and beyond that, to shed great love to us through Christ our Lord, who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin to atone for every single one that we have ever committed, that we may ever commit in the future. In Christ, they're all paid for and atoned for, and therefore we can be truly reconciled to you in a peace that surpasses all our understanding why you would humble yourself to take on human flesh to live among us and to bear our iniquities is, is beyond anything we can think or imagine. And beyond that, not just to bear for our sin, but also to bring us in, adopted into your family as beloved children, beloved as Christ is loved by the Father, and so the saints are loved by you. I pray that cherishing will be enough to overcome any disappointments we have in this life, any mistreatment that we may feel or sense from others and other peoples and other circumstances, any other unfaithfulness that might occur. May we be drawn to the faithfulness that is in Christ our Lord and stand in the peace that is provided to us in Christ. I pray for this year as we set out anew, another year, that Christ would be exalted. He indeed is preeminent, and may we re truly recognize that in real and vital ways. May Christ be exalted in each of us individually. May he be the first thought of our life, the direction of our heart, uh, the compass by which we seek out to, to walk in newness of life. I pray, Father, that collectively, as your body of Christ, that others may indeed truly see Christ as the people of God gathered together to encourage one another, to admonish where that is required, even rebuke in love, the love of Christ, to call us to the path of life. And may we be in great encouragement to each other this year. 
I pray through the power of the Spirit that indeed this day you would help us to rejoice in the gift that is Jesus Christ our Lord. And may we hear what Christ would say to the church even this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 635. And we'll sing another day, another year is dawning. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Psalm 90, 635. Let's turn to number 663. 663, O take your eyes, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil, Ephesians 6. Yeah. 
morning church what a beautiful day to praise the lord amen this morning we're going to read psalm chapter 86 if you'll go ahead and start turning there if you don't have your bible this morning that's going to be page 494 in your pew bible <clears throat> again that's psalm chapter 86 if you don't have your bible this morning page 494 in your pew bible Before we get started with scripture, I was uh, listening to the to the song that Amber was playing earlier this morning, and it took me back about 20 years with my grandmother playing that song on the piano. I love to tell the story, page 626 in the hymnal. As you're turning to Psalm 86, I'm just going to read the first verse and, and last verse in the chorus, uh, but this is burned in my memory as a child singing this, so what a beautiful story it is. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme and glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme and glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Amen. Amen. Psalm 86. Uh, in this scripture we're going to see is a psalm of individual lament in which David expresses his distress and he overcomes that distress through praise and worship. There is a sense of urgency demonstrated by some 14 prayer requests that he sends to the Lord. Undergirding this relationship is the covenant relationship with God. 
three sections we're going to see. Number one, the request for God's attention. Number two, the testimony to God's uniqueness. And number three, the plea for God's deliverance. So as, as we start this, this new year off, you know, what I'm really focusing on is thankfulness. <clears throat> thankfulness in, in all things in Christ. Um, we see continued, the, the continued COVID madness and, and lots of people dying and all that. And the, the question is not, you know, why did God let this happen? It's why did God not kill more people? Because we're all wicked sinners and we need Jesus Christ. So I'm really focusing on thankfulness, and as a church, we, we're continuing to focus on Scripture, and I love the public reading of Scripture. Uh, I don't think I've been to one in ten churches or one in eight churches that actually do this, so I'm so, I'm so blessed, and we're so blessed and thankful to be part of a church that focuses on God's Word solely. Let's read Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. And save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let us pray this morning together. Father, we thank you for the many blessings again, Lord, that you've given us that we don't deserve. Lord, we're all wicked sinners that deserve death, hell, and the grave forever, if not for Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the cross, in his resurrection. Lord, as we look into this new year, we think about what's ahead and we really have no idea what's coming, but we know it's in your hands. We cannot predict the future. We cannot know what's going to happen. 
We don't want to know. But you know, Lord, and you've ordained it all to happen. And come what may, may we never be distracted by the world around us, Lord. May we continue to focus on the kingdom. Help us, Lord, live in conformity with all things that please your heart. Knowing that one day, Lord, you'll pour out eternal blessings on our level of faithfulness. Lord, we commit ourselves to you with eagerness to see what will unfold this year ahead. Lord, we continue to thank you for the sound of wonderful, precious children. We ask, Lord, that you give us opportunity, Lord, to live faithfully in the home in front of our children and preach the gospel. Lord, help us to be servants in all aspects of our life this year, servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ, servants of one another in the church servants at home and in work. Lord, let the world see us set apart people, not living for this world, but for the world to come and for Jesus Christ. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition. Lord, bring more brothers and sisters who desire holiness and have a hunger for your word. Lord, we desire to exalt your name today and ask for you to open our hearts and minds through worship and song, but most of all through the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you break any hard heart here this morning and save that person that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Lord, this week and this year, we ask for the strength and the opportunities to proclaim the gospel, Lord, in the home, in work, at the marketplace, anywhere that we can proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Give us that opportunity and strength to do so. Lord, we ask this morning that you help us spend the <clears throat> tithes and offering wisely. Help us to spend every dollar for the glorification of your name alone. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
soldiers of Christ arise, put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6.11. <clears throat> 6.58.
couple of courageous men at the crucifixion. And then we move to the burial of Christ found in John chapter 19. John 19, we've been going through the Gospel of John. We have now come to the burial of Christ following his crucifixion. And we'll look at verse 38 through 42. Today, Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a day in which we gather together because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll read more about that in the next chapter, chapter 20. It's the first day of the week, rather than the end of the week as our culture considers it, but we in the church consider this the very beginning. This is the way to start off the week by what is preeminent, and that is Jesus Christ. We do so by thinking about the new life that we have in Jesus Christ as he has resurrected from the dead. The calendar has turned the page, if you will, to a new year, 2022. And I do think it's helpful to take a moment to think about what will occur next in this course of this year and come up with some sort of resolve for various things that might benefit you spiritually. I would encourage you to do so. We'll discuss that at length on Wednesday if you can participate. That can be very helpful. For now, I want our focus to turn to this text and a theme which I would derive from it, and it is simply this, that loving the glory that comes from God rather than men. I encourage you to do so. You can see this by way of application in what occurs within this particular narrative. It's a matter of priority in all of our lives to live for the glory of, man, of God as opposed to the glory of man, the glory that comes from God, that eternal weight of glory rather than temporal gain. In our text, we left off last time with these immortal words by Jesus Christ, in verse 30, where he says, it is finished. And he does so with a loud voice of proclamation. It is finished. All has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. He has now laid down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He will now then be buried. And then on the third day, he will take his life back up again as he has promised. We'll find that out in, in next order. But Jesus did foretell about this particular day as well, his burial. A text which we'll cross-reference and get to in a bit is found in John chapter 12, and I'll just read it for you. Jesus is telling his disciples this as he's teaching them by way of analogy. He says, truly, truly, that means verily, verily, or amen, amen. This is 
of great certainty, this will absolutely happen, if you will. He says, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The falling down into the earth, by way of analogy, is like a, a grain, a seed, put in the ground, buried, if you will. And in that process comes fruitfulness, a newness of life. Beautiful analogy. Jesus is speaking of his burial, this grain of wheat falling into the ground. This is an often overlooked aspect about the death of Christ, his burial. But it is necessary because it is going to point to what comes next. Not only what happened already, that is, he, he absolutely did die. It wasn't a swooning. It, it wasn't just a temporary.
seeing man mentioned in a text here, the preacher, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. We're having some technical difficulties and pray for audio video in the, 20, the year 2022. Two prominent men here, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, both members of the Sanhedrin. They're now identified here in our text as disciples of Jesus. And you can find out because the text mentions that to some degree, but also certainly their actions of one, Joseph asking for the body, and then Nicodemus bringing along those spices and wraps as, as was part of the custom of the burial. They wouldn't trouble themselves otherwise in this matter if they didn't care and follow Christ. This task would have been a task laid down to somebody else to dispose of the body. Instead, you have two very prominent men that ask for the body and take the trouble to lay it in a tomb. Their actions demonstrate that they are servants or slaves of Christ, their king. They demonstrate their devotion to him by serving in this lowly task, not even asking someone else to do it, but they step up to do it. By implication, and I'll show you the text here, but I think it is a clear deduction that both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are believers. They are followers of Christ. They are true disciples. I would also say they have been so for a while, but secretly. Our text mentions here, specifically Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll look at Nicodemus, he's mentioned a number of times in the Gospel of John, but he was secretly, for verse 38, the fear of the Jews, that is Joseph of Arimathea. On crucifixion eve, all that we have gone through thus far in hearing and seeing what's going on with Jesus Christ, everything changes for them. For these two men at this point in history... They are now openly followers of Christ. Something has changed. Prior, they were secretly. The cross changes everything for everyone. To really look at Jesus for who he is and what he has done, I assure you, that awareness will be manifested in your life, and it does for them. In their specific situation, both of these men give up all the prestige that they had, all of the privilege that they had in that society, all of the power that they had, all of this to provide a reverential burial for Christ who has died on the cross, but they recognize him as their king. As we've mentioned before, all the other disciples have fled the scene. John has been assigned the care and responsibility of Jesus' birth mother, Mary, 
He's gone, perhaps consoling her. Jesus is on the cross. These men come, prominent men come, ask permission. Perhaps due to their influence, they are granted that, and they take the body and bury it. I think it would be helpful at this point then to think through these two men that John has mentioned. We need to be aware of them and know a bit about them. As I mentioned, Nicodemus comes to mind perhaps the most familiar, but let us remind you of who he is. You can find him introduced in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and the very beginning of John 3 simply says there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. The text says that he is a Pharisee, he is a ruler of the Jews, that is, he he would have been part of this ruling class, the Sanhedrin. John often refers to this class simply as the Jews. He's not referring specifically to their ethnicity, which would have been true. They would have been Jews, but that the Jews are considered, in John's uh, language much, would be the, this ruling class. Well, note here that Nicodemus is of that class, and he happens to be a Pharisee. The word Pharisee is an Aramaic, comes from an Aramaic word. It means to separate. This sect or this group of Jewish rulers were practiced great piety, and in particular in relationship to the law of Moses. They were careful to want to um, follow and obey the law as written. And the problem with this group was what was going on on the inside, not the outside. Jesus does confront them and rebukes them because of their hypocritical heart, that is, the Pharisees, and he lumps in them with them the scribes as well. I'll read this text for you. You can turn if you wish, but um, I'm going to come back to the book of John. But here, just to give you a selection um, of this group of ruling class that Nicodemus was part of. In Matthew, he records Matthew 23, and I'll just pick up 23 and 24 as a selection, but you can read further a a number of dialogue like this that Jesus confronts this very group who Nicodemus was a part of and declares judgment on them. Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He doesn't mince words. He calls them hypocrites. And to say woe means to announce judgment upon them. This is a prophetic uh, declaration of judgment to them, condemning them, if you will. Woe to you. Why? He goes on, Jesus would say, for you tithe mint and dill, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
These you ought to have done, Jesus said. That is, do all these little particular things, but without neglecting the others. He calls them blind guides and then uses this idiom, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> but a great analogy. I can't think of a better one. We might say you miss the forest for the trees, right? You're so worried about the little particulars. Okay, they're not unimportant. They were, but they are weightier things. Weightier things, the bigger picture, justice, mercy, faithfulness. This is a description of who Nicodemus was and the group in which he participated. He recognized himself as someone who might have been pious, someone who might have been, in his mind, fulfilling that very law and yet missing it by a mile. John notes in chapter 3 that it was at night. John chooses words very carefully and provides a wide range of meaning. I think he was doing that here as well. Indeed, it was night. It was evening. Nicodemus being then a prominent member of this class of people, the Pharisees, and to be one of these rulers, a notable person, comes to Jesus in a friendly manner, engaging him at night, no doubt, so that others wouldn't notice. His party had been rebuked continually by Jesus Christ. I would say most in this, essentially all except a few, were antagonistic back towards Jesus. This is the same group that orchestrates this illegal trial and crucifies Christ, the Sanhedrin. It is night. He's coming in. Others were seeking actively disparage Jesus to put him away and eventually to put him to death. But here you have Nicodemus coming in a friendly encounter in the secrecy of night. He goes to him when it's dark. But the darkness also, in John, I think the intent here is, as he contrasts darkness and light, as symbols also of an illustrative of the condition of somebody's soul. Nicodemus, as well as the rest of the Pharisees, thought that they were walking in the light. They thought that they were pleasing God. They thought that they were in the kingdom of God, and here he is coming in a friendly way to Jesus Christ and saying, hey, what's going on here? I'm part of the kingdom. You're, you must, looks like you must be in the kingdom. And what is Jesus' response to him? You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you have been born from above. 
or born again. Again, one of these words that conveys both meanings. A second time, and yet, and, and, and from the source as well, from above. Nicodemus tells Jesus, we know you have come from God because nobody could do what you're doing, these signs, these miracles, unless God is with him. I would say that expression is a glimmer of light in this great darkness. Nicodemus does, and rightly so, recognize the authenticity of Jesus' miracles that indeed they are from God. Others, in uh, their response to, in the rebellious response to Jesus, attributed his works to Satan. Here, Nicodemus is recognizing, hey, look, these are works of God, and no one could actually do them unless God is with him. I'd say that's a sign of hope, if you will, a glimmer of light as he recognizes the very source of these miracles. It is going to begin to dawn on Nicodemus in time that his message is also true. The miracles were done not to do some sort of extravagant event. You know, this is the God who spoke and the world's come into existence. This is the God who continues to speak and the world continues to go on until he says otherwise. That is who this person is. And all that he says is true. Nicodemus will come to that awareness, not of his own logic and thought, but through the supernatural work of God on his very heart as he continues to hear the preaching and the proclamation that Jesus gives. Turn over to chapter 7 and hear this dawning turns into what I would think of as shades of gray at the very least. John chapter 7, and beginning verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And here is just an exemplar of Jesus' preaching here at the feast. We've been through this, but let me remind you. Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Could you imagine hearing Christ say and proclaim these very words? And John explains to us now, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that is Jesus' promise then to send that very Holy Spirit to dwell in the heart and life of the believer from the point of his ascension into heaven. The response to the preaching of Christ is found in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. The prophet would have been that one who comes in the authority, a future prophet who will make a proclamation 
that Isaiah, uh, that, I'm sorry, that Moses talked about. Someone in that line, if you will. It, it is speaking, and it's another way to discuss this one who is going to come, who is the Messiah, or in Greek here, the Christ. So they recognize that hearing the very words of Christ, they recognize that he indeed is the Christ. But then others said, challenging that, others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, they didn't recognize that Jesus was born there, but he was associated with where he was currently living in Galilee. And so in their ignorance, they discussed this, they debated. They did hear his message. It does prick their heart, and yet they're challenged, I think, here due to ignorance, if you will. But there is a division among them, verse 43. Some of the people wanted to arrest him, but note this, no one laid hands on him. The reason they didn't lay hands on him, because as we have gone through the Gospel of John, it wasn't time for the sovereign God to lay down his life. He will be arrested when he's ready. To be arrested, he will lay down his life when he's ready to lay down his life. This was not the time. He is in complete control and complete authority. So even though they wanted, he doesn't allow that. So verse 45, note this. I think it's interesting. The officers then come to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay? This is the same group here that Nicodemus was a part of, right? They had sent these officers out to go, temple guards, if you will, to go out and uh, uh, arrest Jesus. And they ask him, well, why, why do you not bring him? Why didn't you bring him back? And note the officer's answer. Verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. He, they heard the power of the very words of Christ. No one ever speaks like Christ. His word, his great power, and they recognize that. And the Pharisees' response, verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, they're, they're saying, we don't believe in him. Why, why would you listen to a guy like that? No one in the respected class has any interest in what this man might be saying. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What they're saying is, we know the law. We have the consensus. <laughs> Our opinion is fact. Why would he need to listen to him? All the people with the, 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 in the right places, they don't believe any of this. And those people that would listen to him, well, you're accursed. Verse 50, here Nicodemus is introduced once again. He's hearing the words of Christ. He sees what Christ has done. He hears what Christ has said. 
And I would say here is a picture, if you will, of the light dawning in the very mind of Nicodemus. John points out that this is the one who had gone to him before. Where? Chapter 3. We just looked at it. And the one and, and who was one of them. That is, he's part of the Pharisee group. He's part of the ruling class. And his response to them puts the brakes on the direction they're wanting to go and points to the very law that they had, that they, that they willfully broke. Doesn't our law judge a man, or does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Which would have been true. We, we went through the Jewish law system. It's a great system. In fact, it, it is uh, couched in such a way that what will occur under their legal system is much more likely someone to be set free than to be punished. The judges were to be, all of them were to be advocates for the confused, for the accused, looking for ways to uh, find no fault in him. Instead, they were just the opposite. Their response to him is what? Verse 52 to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? A pejorative statement. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're just going to dismiss him by a character assassination rather than listen to the very facts. That has nothing to do with what he just said. <laughs> Doesn't our law, <laughs> he's pointing to the law, give him a hearing first? They don't even address it. They instead just assassinate Nicodemus's character. He's shut down by his peers, but he does give us indication that the words of Christ are having an impact on his own thinking. In chapter 19, then, it is no wonder that when Joseph Arimathea is mentioned, that Nicodemus is also mentioned as well. And he is the one bringing those very items that are going to be a part of Jesus's burial. He is now publicly identifying with Christ. Before it was privately, it was in darkness. He did stand up to this angry mob of Jewish rulers who he was part of, and he did challenge them, and they summarily set him aside. But now he is identifying with Jesus in chapter 19 in preparing for his burial. Can I tell you this? His career in the Jewish law court is effectively done, right? This line has been drawn. Nicodemus now, though, is compelled to cross over the power of public opinion, prestige, and privilege. And he literally picks up his cross, the one that he will bear, and he follows Jesus. This act will cost him all that he has gained 
in this society and life in which he lived, to be identified now with the crucified Christ. The second man that's mentioned in our text in chapter 19 is Joseph of Arimathea. All gospel, all the four gospels actually mention him, but it's only at this time. We don't have the history like we do with Nicodemus. So I'm going to just pull out some selections from the gospels. You can either turn or listen as you prefer. He is part of the, he is like Nicodemus, aware of Jesus' public ministry. No doubt he has heard Jesus preach. He has also seen the miracles as Nicodemus. Perhaps they talked to one another. We don't know that. That's just speculation. But he would be exposed to that and be just as much aware of all that Nicodemus was aware of. But let's look at a few selections from the Gospels. First, Mark chapter 15 because it does describe who this man is, and I think that's helpful. Mark describes Joseph this way, Mark fifteen forty three. He says that he is a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God and took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It says that he is now a respected member of the council, not just in the council, but one of the most respected that is in the council. Like Nicodemus, he would have been a high-ranking member, thought well of by his peers, if you will. Note Mark mentions that he's looking for the kingdom of God. It is Nicodemus who says that as well about the kingdom of God which Jesus replies, you can't see it unless you are first born again. But he is looking for that as well. This is a God fear. Perhaps indications here that he is not uh, swollen in his own hypocrisy like some of the others. But yet there is a, a tinge here in the fact that Mark indicates that he is someone who is seeking God, looking for the very kingdom of God. Perhaps he heard, as Mark would mention in chapter 1, Christ, this one, preaching about the kingdom of God when Christ says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That very message that we preach today, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And perhaps he did repent and believe the gospel. We're not given all of those details, but we are given the fact of what he did. It says he had great courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body. Verse 43, a courageous man. You can think of a number of reasons, can't you, in the setting here to go to Pilate and ask for the body? Pilate was just in a tug of war with the Jewish council, was he not? Back and forth, in which 
Pilate continually declared him not guilty. And this Jewish leadership constantly said, no, you need to crucify him. You need to crucify him. And if you don't, we're going to create trouble with Caesar. Now a member of the council comes to Pilate. He doesn't know exactly who each individual is, most likely. But now that one, who they have been antagonistic against for quite some time, he comes to Pilate and asks him for the body. Going against the wishes of the council as well, this is going to cost him also with his peers. Like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea is going to be cast out. He will no longer be one of the respected power brokers of his day. He will no longer be a respected member of his community. It will cost him. Luke chapter 23 gives us, Luke gives us some additional information about this Joseph of Arimathea, his, his background, if you will. I'll read it for you, Luke 23, verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, hence we identify him as Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph, a common name, and that helps us identify this one. He was a member of the council, and then talk about his person, he was a good and righteous man. So looking at his character, this was an upright person that you would think well of. Mark says he was respected by others, good and righteous here in Luke. And Luke adds this detail that I think is interesting about Joseph. He says, verse 51 of Luke 23, who had not consented to their decision and action. What decision and action? To put Christ to death. He was one who didn't consent to do that. Instead, he was looking for the kingdom of God. He didn't dissent during this Jewish trial, if you will. They, they all assented together to crucify Christ, to deliver him over to Pilate. He was not one of the dissenting voices there, but he was one of the dissenting voices by not showing up and being part of that quorum in which he knew the fix was in. I'd argue that both Nicodemus and Joseph were not present. Them not being present in that trial made that trial illegal because they had to have at least one person on the side of the accused, and there were none on the side of the accused. Uh, I think this was a very good way for Nicodemus and for Joseph to withdraw from that so that it would demonstrate that this was a sham trial against Jesus. Luke calls him a good and righteous man. Matthew adds additional detail as well that is helpful for us to know. I'll read it for you, Matthew 27, 57. He says, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Christ. And he demonstrates that he was a genuine follower in participation of this burial. He is described as a rich man, thereby fulfilling 
what the prophet Isaiah had said 700 years before this very day. Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Filled out, completed to the very end. The wicked that he was with are the two on the cross. The rich man is this one, Joseph of Arimathea. They would have, in that culture, wanted to throw him on a trash heap like the rest of the wicked. But he wasn't the wicked. And so, in great honor, he buries him in a tomb. And I'm back to our text in John 19. Verse 41, that tomb is said to be in, in this garden that's right there. You can imagine that this is nice, right? Not a barren place, but a garden is mentioned. A garden tomb, and John makes note, verse 41, which no one had yet been laid if you understand the culture of that day, what they would have done in a tomb like that was simply this. It would, it, it would have been a cave-type structure. Imagine that. And inside of that cave would be a ledge, maybe two or three at the most. On this little ledge or table, that's where the body would lay. They put the body on the table, on the ledge, to decay. After a period of time when the body had decayed and all that was left was bones, they take the bones and gather them up and put them in a little box called an ossuary box. They take the little box and put it on a shelf within the tomb, and there would be stacked box after box after box. You see how it worked, right? Sort of like what we think in modern day is maybe a mausoleum or something to that effect. John makes a note here that no one had yet been laid there. It was a rich man's tomb. There's nobody else there, just Christ. It also demonstrates, I think, too, the, the inability for some superstition at that time that if you were buried and there might be bones of saints, that somehow that would convey some sort of power and perhaps attribute to what is coming next, and that would be his resurrection. There was no one there. There was no other outside influence, and this would have been the tomb that is reserved for a single person, a rich man, and that one is Jesus Christ. He wouldn't need it long, by the way, so he just borrowed it. What message can we get? I hope you've already gotten several as we've walked through and looked at the lives of these men who followed Christ kind of secretly and then finally gave up everything to follow Christ. I think that's the message that you can get from it. And rather than hear me give that message, would you want to hear from Jesus as he would give it? John chapter 12, and I invite you to turn. We'll finish with this. If Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were here among us, I think their message might be simply this. The glory of God is far better than the glory of men. 
both men had achieved the glory of men. But it's a far cry from the glory of God. It took them a little while to recognize it. But recognize that they did, and they picked up their cross and followed Christ. And that is the core idea for all those that would follow Christ. Pick up your cross and follow him. Love his glory rather than the glory of man. Jesus would put it this way. If you're in John 12, look at verse 36. I'll, I'll try to get through this as quick as I can. Jesus is preaching, and he admonishes those that would hear. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Notice how this light and darkness play in a, in a, um, in a spiritual way. The, he's admonishing, the light's here, believe. Believe why? So that you can then be a son of light. And to demonstrate that, much like how prophets might have done in that culture, in the next, he says, after he said these things, and there were more, he was preaching, but that's the summary of it. He hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe. And so that the word may be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and whom the Lord, the arm of the Lord has been revealed, and therefore they could not believe. This is a prophecy of specific judgment on Israel for rejecting this one who is the Messiah, the light of the world. By implication, rejecting Jesus Christ's message is the same today as it was then. We have a saying that the sun melts the Wax hardens the clay. Rejecting Jesus Christ will bring judgment to you, a hardening, if you will. Isaiah said, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will hear them. The charge is not to despise the glory of God. For the glory of man. It will harden your heart. It is of great warning. But notice verse 42. If you're in John 12. Uh, this phrase is incredible. He says nevertheless. Many. Even of the authorities. Believed in him. Can I tell you at least two of the authorities. Joseph. And Nicodemus right. They are demonstrating belief, I think, is here, and by implication, certainly. But even authorities believed. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. So they wouldn't lose their place. They didn't openly confess it. Something happened, changed in their heart. Their affections were changed, but their mouths were silent because they weren't ready yet to give up the glory of man. They come to Christ in secret. 
John explains why in verse 43, and that's where I'm getting this phrase from. Look at it. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Challenge your own heart for that, right? Don't let me challenge it. Let Christ challenge you on that for this year. What, what do you love? Do you love the glory of man or do you love the glory that comes from God? There, there's two messages here. Reject this glory. It's going to harden your heart. The preacher of Hebrews would put it this way. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. They shall not enter into my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The light is here. It is Christ. preacher of Hebrews exhorts and challenged to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That would mean this day, today. Let none of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The second message is to receive. Receive the message of Christ. John, in his gospel, in a number of places, I'll go through this quickly, demonstrates people who love the glory of man more than the glory of God, who believed and yet were concerned more about their status in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 13. He talks about believers who, yet for the fear of the Jews, didn't speak openly of Christ. Chapter 9, do you remember the man born blind? Who he talked about Christ. He says, I don't know. I was blind, but now I see. And and he wouldn't reject Christ, so they went to his parents, and his parents, 9.22, said, let's talk to him. And John tells us they said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. He couldn't be part of the community. He couldn't be part of their uh, of their any any kind of their enterprise, this would have been very costly to those people in that day. We already saw in chapter twelve that many, even of the authorities, believed, but for fear they didn't confess him, so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Back to our chapter, chapter nineteen. This same descriptive is actually given of Joseph of Arimathea. He says he was a disciple of Christ, but secretly for fear of the Jews. There's two ways to live, beloved. 
You can live for the glory of man or the glory of God. Christ is calling us to live for the glory of God. It is Christ to whom we would look to, as the preacher of Hebrews would say, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Love the glory of God, the glory that comes from God rather than man. Pick up your cross, follow him. And what is promised for all who will do so is an imperishable crown with Christ forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray for myself and your people may be challenged by the very words of Christ. To love the glory of God more than ourselves or anything else that would grab our attention. May Christ be preeminent in our life and our focus. May he be exalted in all we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give you a moment, as I typically do, to think on these things right where you're at. If you have something to confess to Christ, even if it's confessing him as Lord, do so now. If you want to talk to any, any, uh, any of the elders afterwards, we're glad to talk to you. But right now, I want you to talk to Christ directly where you're at. If you have sin to confess, confess it. If you want to confess Christ as Lord even now, do so. Take a moment, think on these things. Peter asked Jesus a question. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've left everything and we followed you. What will we have? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone... Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Father, I pray that you would grant us the faith to believe. May Christ be exalted.
in all of our lives. To his glory be praised. Amen. So I'll stand and turn to 668 in our hymnals. Six hundred and Psalm 90, which is a tremendous uh, psalm to read. I greatly encourage everyone to read the whole thing, <clears throat> but for brevity, we'll, we'll just pray part of this back to the Lord. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom, satisfy us, in the morning, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have given us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown in your servant and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.